Titus chapter 1, verses 5 to 9. I'll read that out. This is God's Word. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard, violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. This is God's word. George Orwell's story, Animal Farm, from a hundred years ago, tells the story of uh, these animals who are seeking to be liberated from the tyranny of their human lords. It's a political satire, uh, but the story... Um, still speaks to us now where these animals um, desire to be set free. There's this moving speech from a, a pig old manor who stirs them up and says that we can live a life free from human lords and uh, away from domineering leadership and actually have equality and we can have a flourishing society. And the animals eventually revolt and they are set free from their human lords. And it's supposed to be this place of complete equality away from domineering leadership that they had seen and eventually it starts um well it starts out okay uh they create these seven commandments and the seventh is one of the most important it's that all animals are created equal or all animals are equal and it kind of sets the tone for this need of equality but of course there is a necessary part of a functional community that requires leadership there must be leadership. Leadership is inevitable. So this equality amongst animal farm doesn't last long before leaders start to rise up. The pigs are kind of like the leadership group. And even within the pigs, there are these leaders fighting for power. And before uh, long, it, it turns into utter chaos. And it basically resembles, it actually gets them to the point where it looks even worse than when they had the human lords ruling over them. So the seventh commandment, all animals are equal, is reduced to only one commandment, but it's changed to say all animals are equal, but some are more equal than others. And that's kind of the idea, right? And, and um, the, the animal farm turns to uh, chaos and these animals wanted to overthrow the human leadership, but what they found was that in doing that, new leaders just arose from within them that was just as unhealthy as before. Leadership is both essential and inevitable. Leadership is inevitable. Someone will rise up. A healthy community requires healthy leadership, and this is precisely what is happening on the Mediterranean island of Crete. They need healthy leadership. The situation in Crete is that churches have been formed. So as the gospel has spread, communities of believers are gathering together, probably across many cities throughout Crete. It was quite big for an island. And there would be many communities that have been formed, but there is no healthy leadership at this point. 
So Paul says to Titus, I've left you on crate so that you may put into order the things that are lacking, the things that remain to be done. What is lacking? It's healthy leadership. So Paul instructs Titus to appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Churches require godly leadership. That is essential to the community. Now, there are two things that I want to clear up before we jump in to look at these characteristics of elders and what function. The first thing is that elders, overseers and pastors, those terms are synonymous and interchangeable. So there is really no uh, biblical place for a lead pastor different to elders as though they're two different offices. That may be a practical way to sort of create um, a distinction in roles, but it's not really a biblical um, category. Elders, overseers and pastors are synonymous and interchangeable. If you look at verse 5, Paul says to Titus, appoint elders in every town and then look at verse 7, for an overseer as God's steward. Now, this is not Paul creating a new office. This is him just giving another name for an elder type role, for a leader in the church. And he is using these interchangeably. So an elder, the word we get, the word presbyteros, which we get presbyterian is for elder. And it literally just means old man. But with an old man, particularly in this context, carries authority. So the elder has authority. The overseer, clearly, overseer has oversight. They look over. So overseer just describes this different aspect of the role where they are to attentively look over the flock. And then pastor, which isn't used in this passage, but it's used elsewhere, is obviously a shepherding term. It's to do with the gentle care that a leader in God's church should have. So elder, overseer, pastor is uh, they are used interchangeably. To make this super clear, in 1 Peter 5, Peter uses the three of these words in one sentence to talk about the same thing. Peter says, Elders, I urge you as a fellow elder, shepherd, that's just the verb for pastor, so pastor the flock while exercising oversight, while overseeing. So Peter says, Elders, pastor the flock, while exercising oversight, while acting as an overseer. They are interchangeable. So as we hear pastor, elder, overseer, this is the same office, the office of elder. In particularly a reformed tradition, there is the office of elder and office of deacons as the two main offices in the church. And here we have the leaders as elders or overseers or pastors. Secondly, the second thing to notice is the plurality of elders. So in verse 5, Paul says, appoint elders, plural, in every town, singular. Uh, there is some debate, not much, but on the language that maybe this could mean that there is just, you know, masses of elders, but there's also masses of towns. So it could be an individual elder, but really the language suggests that there is a plurality of elders, in each town. And I think this is clear from the example of Paul in Acts 20 when he prays with the Ephesian elders, it says the elders, plural, of the church of Ephesus, singular. So there is a plurality of elders in each church. 
And this is very pertinent for us, particularly as an established church, because we do not have a plurality of elders. I am the sole pastor elder, and that is not something long-term that we hope for. We hope to raise up elders so that there is a plurality of elders, because that is the biblical way of church governance, of oversight. So this is very pertinent for us. But the thing is, this is not an uncommon thing to have a community of God's people without a plurality of elders. We see it happening here in Crete. It's why Paul's writing this. When the gospel goes out, often communities of believers start gathering together and what needs to happen is that healthy leadership needs to be raised up. But when God's mission moves forward, often... Disciples are made and leaders follow after that. So this is a very relevant passage for us as as we as a community continue to pray for elders to be raised up. And the reason it can take some time for elders to be raised up is because they don't fall off trees. There's a high bar for elders, as we will see in this passage. It's not like we're just going to say, hey, does anyone like, you know, picking straws or something like does anyone want to be an elder sure come along there's a very high bar so it takes time we want to be very careful with uh, appointing elders but it is something that we pray for and that we should be striving toward so let's look at this high bar that paul gives here as we look at the categories or the characteristics of elders in verse 6 Paul says, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. This is, you know, Paul just setting a very clear bar early on. If you don't meet this, then it's not like he's saying don't bother reading on, but like you just don't meet the qualifications. It's a high bar. The first thing we see here is that they are above reproach. This literally means that they are blameless. That is a high bar. And Paul's point here isn't that we are looking for an impeccable man who never sins. There's only one who's done that. That's Jesus. Nor is his point for us to spiritualize this and say, oh, well, Paul does say we are all wholly blameless and above reproach. Because that would defeat the whole purpose. So there is a point here. Paul's emphasis in saying they must be above reproach is that there should be evidence in the elder's life or the prospective elder of a consistent pattern of these traits that will follow, a consistent pattern of integrity, of discipline, self-control, and I would say a contagious love for Christ. That must be evident in the prospective elder. So the elder cannot have patterns in their life that would call their integrity and uprightness into question. As you look at their life as a whole, their pattern should be one which leads toward integrity and discipline, being blameless in their character. And this is why Paul says to Titus in the second chapter in verse 7, he instructs Titus to show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. He's saying, Titus, make sure you show a pattern in your life that is evident to the people around you, that you are a model of good works, you have integrity, dignity, and sound speech. Be a model of that. So the elder is to be above reproach in their character. 
And Paul continues this requirement. Paul continues this requirement of being above reproach in these next two things that he says here, in marriage and in raising children. So he goes on to say, above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to a charge of debauchery or insubordination. See, this is connected to being above reproach because it's pretty easy to appear to have a pattern of integrity if I only have to do it for a few hours on a Sunday and perhaps a few hours midweek. I could probably fake that pretty well. What I cannot fake is 24-7 with my family demonstrating a pattern of integrity. That would be exhausting. You would have to be a psychopath to be able to do that. So Paul is saying here, it's not just private. The elder must show integrity in their family life. And that's why he says the husband of one wife. Now, this is not necessarily saying that elders have to be married. Paul would be disqualified from an elder type role. If that were the case, probably many, even Titus, we don't know that he was married. It appears likely that he was not. The emphasis here in a polygamous society is that they must not have multiple wives. That was never God's design. God's design was always that there would be one man and one woman that would come together to be one flesh. And so they must be the husband of one wife. The emphasis rather is on integrity and purity, particularly sexual integrity and purity within the home life. So the elder must be a man of one woman. The elder must be like Job and say, I have made a covenant with my eyes not to look at another woman. There is integrity and that should be demonstrated in their life. So we can apply this in our non-polygamous culture because let's be honest, we don't come across too many people with multiple wives here. But we can apply this in our culture by saying the elder, whether they are married or not, must not have an uncontrollable struggle with lust. They must not. They must demonstrate purity in that. If they are married, eyes for only one woman. If not married, they must demonstrate integrity and purity in their single life. Most often how someone's marriage is going will be a test case, not all the time, but a test case for then how they're going to manage the household of faith. And not only in marriage, but then how their children are going will be the other test case. So Paul says their children must be believers, not open to a charge of debauchery or insubordination. Now, I don't believe this necessarily means that the children must all trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. And I think I can demonstrate that. The word for believer here is the exact same word if you look at verse 9 where Paul says he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. The word for believer is the exact same word. If you remember faith, belief and trust in the Greek language is just one word. Depends upon how the translators are going to translate it. But the emphasis here is on trustworthiness. The children must be raised according to the ways of the Lord. They must have a trustworthy character. They must be immersed in the ways of the Lord. But I believe that the emphasis is upon that rather than a personal 
uh, salvation at that point in time because how can you really tell sometimes with children? And just to really highlight this, when Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul gives an almost identical list of qualifications for the elder. It's about 80 or 90% the same. There are a few differences. And one of the differences in wording is where Paul tells Timothy how the elder should act with their children. And Paul says the elder must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. This says nothing about them believing. The emphasis upon character, the emphasis upon submission, which is consistent with what he says here about not being open to a charge of debauchery or insubordination. They should, it should be clear whether or not they have firmly trusted in Jesus Christ that at the very least they have been immersed in the good character required of Christian teaching. They should be raised according to the ways of the Lord and there should be a sense of submissiveness to them. Trustworthiness. And I believe that's the emphasis that Paul is referring to. So if the children are completely rebellious then that does disqualify someone from eldership. They are not fit to be an elder. And I don't believe that this is to shame anyone. I think it's actually a gracious thing that God would say, hey, get your family sorted. Like, spend time with them. Don't worry about trying to then spend time with 20 other family members in the household of faith in a leadership role. Have your family together. That's why Paul says, if, if a man cannot manage their own household, how can we expect them to manage God's? So the point is that the elders, children, their family, their wife, should also demonstrate a level of good character that should ultimately flow down because the elder is there to be a model of faithfulness. So the elder is to be above reproach and demonstrate this fully in their public and private life. If we skip ahead to verse 8, we'll come back to verse 7. If we skip ahead to verse 8, we see Paul unpack further what this integrity should look like in the life of the elder. So Paul says they should be hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined. Hospitable, the elder should be welcoming. Hospitality, I've said before, is the combination of two words, stranger and love. Hospitality is when you love the stranger, not just when you love friends. It's when you love the stranger and you make that stranger feel very loved. That's hospitality. The elder should be hospitable. They should be welcoming. They should invite people into their life. A lover of good, they must be drawn to the right things, namely to Christ. They should demonstrate that in their life. Self-controlled, the elder should control their temper, their desires, their language. Upright, holy and disciplined, these are all very similar. The elder must portray a life of godliness that shows devotion and reverence to Christ, which overflows into a life of good works that should be evident in their life. And to make these even clearer, we then go back to verse 7. So Paul not only says what the elders should be, but to make it clear, he says they should definitely not be anything like this. And he says they must not be arrogant, quick-tempered, a drunkard, violent or greedy. These are all largely to do with self-control. 
and specifically lacking self-control. If you are arrogant, quick-tempered, a drunkard, violent or greedy, you lack control in pride, temper, drink, power and money. You do not have control in those areas. And so if there are habits of this in the life of a prospective elder, then they are no longer prospective. They are disqualified from that office. Now, you may have noticed, I hope you have noticed, something about these characteristics. That is that a lot of them are just used for general disciples of Christ. A lot of these characteristics are required of us. It's not like if you don't ever think that you're called to be an elder, you say, whew, glad that's not me. No, this is you. We should all be striving toward this. These are qualities which all Christians should be striving to. Many of these characteristics show themselves up again and again. For example, in Galatians 5, one of the last fruits of the Spirit is self-control. Self-control is all over these qualifications of elders, and that is a fruit of the Spirit that we should be demonstrating. In Ephesians 4, where Paul talks about the newness of life and what this looks like, and he says, put away all bitterness, malice, anger. Get it away. Let no unwholesome speech come out of your mouth. Have soundness of speech. And that's not just to elders, that's to everyone. He says, let none of that be named among a follower of Jesus. They should have integrity in their life. So we should all be striving toward this with all of the power that Christ works within us by his grace. The difference is that the elder must demonstrate this consistently in their life in good measure, or they are not fit for the task. So if someone has not reached the level of maturity where you could demonstrate this in your life. It doesn't, may not mean that you're not a Christian. I mean, if there's been lingering patterns of this for a long time, then that's cause for concern. But it doesn't mean that you're not a Christian if sin comes up in your life. But the difference is for the elder, they should have this demonstrated consistently. Whereas for someone who does not, it means that they are not at a place where they have the maturity yet to, de- to actually manage God's household and God's design for his body so that we would all grow in these qualities is actually for him to appoint godly elders to model that so that then other people could see that in the life of the person and grow to that maturity, which is why Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's the pattern that should happen. The health of the church will often rise or fall on whether, I believe, men are willing to take very seriously these qualities, whether you end up in eldership or not, but to take very seriously the call for holy living and have lives of integrity instead of just playing around like many do, living out a high school life, prolonging adulthood until your 40s. Men should be men biblically and lead by example. So let this be an exhortation, particularly to the men to live faithfully. This, of course, does not absolve women. We will get to women, particularly in Titus 2, where Paul talks about this. But for the men to rise up to this, to demonstrate the leadership required 
that Paul sets out here for elders. Now, this is the elders' character requirements. This is just the bar to sort of get in. But then what about the elders' function? How do they exercise their authority over God's house? What are they supposed to do? There are three particular things we see here in this text that I think summarize in very quick way the function of the elder. Firstly, they are to hold firm to the word in order to faithfully teach and rebuke. This is in verse 9. Paul instructs Titus to hold firm to the trustworthy word. So the elder must be a man of the word. The elder must drink deeply from the Word of God every day. How could you possibly hold firm to a trustworthy Word unless you are constantly giving yourself to it? The elder must hold firm to the trustworthy Word. And this is so that he can teach and rebuke. So this is one of the primary purposes of the elder. It is to ensure sound doctrine is taught throughout the church. I know that doesn't seem the most flashy thing for people, but that is the the primary purpose, is to make sure that sound doctrine is taught to teach and rebuke as required. Notice if you look ahead from verse 10, which we'll get to in over the coming weeks in 10 to 15, the reasons that Paul gives for why elders particularly have to be raised up here in Crete. He says Because there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers. He's talking about false teachers there. And then he says, after giving the testimony of Cretans being liars, evil beasts and lazy gluttons, he says, yes, this is true. And he says, there are many that profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. So there are false teachers and fake disciples. That's what's going on, and that's why elders have to be raised up. There are many who are insubordinate, who perpetuate false teaching, and there are many who, by their character and their works, in a similar way, perpetuate false teaching because by their life they deny God. And this is why elders have to be raised up. You stop false teachers and false disciples through both rebuke and teaching what is good. So you correct, you bring correction to what is wrong, but then you instruct in what is right. And you can't leave either of those out. And that's the elder's task. Teach and rebuke. Instruct and correct while you are holding firm to the trustworthy word. The second function is that the elder is to manage God's household. Notice in verse 7, Paul says, for an overseer as God's steward. This is a word for manager, someone who manages something. He doesn't own it. He's merely entrusted with it and he is managing it. So the elder is God's steward. He is to manage the affairs of the household of faith. They keep watch over the flock. Just in Acts 20, 28, don't worry about turning there, but I'll, I'll read out the passage. This is where Paul is praying with the Ephesian elders in a very emotional time, right before he's saying, this is probably the last time I'm ever going to see you again. And he goes off and he says, 
pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. That's a weighty task. Paul is saying, you elders, pay careful attention to yourselves and pay careful attention to the flock because God has made you an overseer. So God appoints elders. There's no self-appointed elders. God appoints them. And God purchased these people. God purchased you and me with the blood of his son, the precious blood of his son. And now Paul says, keep watch over them. What a weighty task. The writer of Hebrews says this as well in chapter 13, where he says elders have to give an account for the life. So I will have to stand before God and give an account for your life, for how I have led you faithfully in the faith. That's terrifying. And that's the reality of elders. The last thing the elder is to lead by example. I think this has been clear in the passage. Paul instructs Titus in that passage in chapter 2, 7, which I read out earlier. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity, dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned. Paul says a very similar thing in 1 Timothy 4 when he says to Timothy, set the believers an example in speech, conduct, love, faith and purity and he says Timothy put these into practice put all of these things into practice so that all may see your progress that's what Paul is instructing Timothy make sure you have these in increasing measure so that people can actually look on and they can see that yes you are growing as a follower of Christ and calling other people to grow in Hebrews 13, 7, the writer tells the church, us, to remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So those who taught the word of God to you, look at their life, see if it is consistent with the word and imitate their faith. Follow it. Elders' lives should be visible and an example that is consistent with what is set out in Scripture for people to follow. How many times does a helicopter fly over us? This is, the, this is a demonic thing, surely. <clears throat> Hopefully we can all hear again now. The elders' lives should be visible and an example that is consistent with what is set out in Scripture for people to follow. Now, this is the qualifications for an elder and then their function how they are to lead but I do think it's important to then briefly talk about what is the congregation's responsibility toward elders and the Bible does talk about this one passage in particular Hebrews 13 17 this passage is a an elder's friend if there ever was one the writer instructs the church to obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. 
So the requirement is to obey elders. It is to submit to elders. That is the requirement. And this has nothing to do with the elder as a person, it has nothing to do with any personality traits I might have, whether I have leadership abilities or not. It has everything to do with the one who has appointed the elder. Remember Acts 20:28. 20, Paul says, the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. God appoints elders. That is where the obedience and submission comes to. This is why we are called to obey and submit to God-ordained leadership, because our obedience and submission to leaders will be the reflection of our obedience and submission to God. I am yet to come across someone who didn't have a problem with submission and it wasn't across the board. I'm yet to come across someone who had a struggle with obeying leadership that also ended up picking and choosing what they want to follow from the Bible. It's usually across the board and the submission and obedience from the congregation is to God ultimately. God appoints the elders. So, of course, this means that obedience and submission is never blind. Obedience and submission is not solely given to the elder regardless of what they teach or how they act. This is why Paul has set this out. Obedience and submission to the elder is only insofar as the elder is fulfilling his role that is consistent with the word. So where an elder is calling for obedience to something that is contrary to God's word, there's no obligation to follow them. Just like the apostles, they say, well, before the Sanhedrin, it's better for us to obey God than man. So there is no call for obedience to an elder that is not teaching something consistent with the word. Or when the elder has been acting in such a way that is arrogant, quick-tempered, or losing self-control in any way, then the right channels should be followed, which is just like any other case of uh, Matthew 19. You follow the right principles. You approach that person, and then you bring two or three witnesses. But Paul actually says in uh, 1 Timothy 5, don't even admit a charge against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. So he actually says, don't even entertain it unless there are two or three witnesses. Because the elder is there, you're bringing a charge, not entirely against God, but it's a weighty thing. It could be if that elder is acting consistently with the word, yet you have a problem with them. It's really saying you have a problem with God. And so this is a serious thing. But if that elder is acting in such a way and it is proven that they are acting with arrogance, quick-tempered, losing self-control, then that elder has disqualified himself. There is no longer any requirement to follow that elder when they have demonstrated themselves to be unfit for the task of eldership. So what a beautiful thing for the congregation to know that it's not blind trust in the elder, but there is a clear pattern that must be followed according to scripture and the writer of hebrews helpfully adds something else for the church where he says let your elders do this with joy and not with groaning make their ruling joyful that is it's always a very awkward thing for an elder themselves to say this sometimes you, you it's kind of like the passage that you want someone else to come in and just say so that you're not the one saying it but that is the reality make the elder's life a joy 
So don't follow the elder begrudgingly. Don't make it unnecessarily difficult. If I can throw out a personal one, timeliness. I love timeliness. I love when people show up on time. That's a wonderful thing. But the point of this is not my subjective things of what, um, like I like early nights and early mornings. I'm not going to ask you to make my life a joy by catering around my lifestyle. That's not the point of this passage. But there is one thing that I think I can say that is objective and not subjective to me and that is also non-negotiable for the follower of Jesus that makes the elder's life joyful. And what brings an elder joy is seeing people who desire Christ, seeing people want to grow in their love for Jesus Bring all of the baggage you want. Bring all of the emotional baggage you want. We all have it. But when there is a desire to just grow in Christ-likeness, to just worship Jesus, boy, that is joyful. That really gets me excited when there is a desire among us, when we can stir each other on, and there is a desire to just, in tears and sorrow, it's not fake smiles, but just desiring to grow together in Christ-likeness. That is joyful. And it's non-negotiable for the follower of Jesus. That's a, that's a requirement. That's part of the job description to grow in Christ likeness. So there is a dual responsibility to this with those under elders and the elders themselves. The elders are to lead by example in their pursuit of Christ, desiring to, as Paul says, present people mature in Christ. They should be leading by example and desiring that. And then those under the elders should see that and likewise want to follow that. And it's kind of a cyclical thing. So there's a dual responsibility for those elders to demonstrate that and then those under the elders to follow that, which then makes the elders' life a joy and it just continues to flourish. And the relief, here's the relief for everyone, you, me, all us followers of Jesus is that we all ultimately look to and submit to Christ. That's it. He's the good shepherd. No elder will ever take his place. The elder is just a tiny little middleman that really is ultimately trying to point everyone to Jesus. And he himself is pointed to Christ, the great shepherd. He is our ruler. He is the one we, we, we will submit to. He is the one we will bow down before, all of us together. And what an example he has given the great shepherd, the great ruler who lays down his life for the sheep, who does not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but actually takes the form of a servant. What an example for us to follow.